0: Welcome to the OKC First podcast.
1: Together, we're learning to do three things.
2: Friendship with God.
0: Friendship with one another.
2: And open friendship for the sake of the world.
1: For more information about OKC First,
0: please visit OKCFirst.com.
1: As many of you will know, this is our final uh, Friday night recording. We typically record these on Friday night. There are a few folks that, that show up here live, and uh, we record these, and then Zach edits them, and they are then broadcast on Sunday mornings. But this is the last time we will do a Friday night service. We move next Sunday, Sunday, September the 6th, to... Um, Our sacred time, 10.30 on Sunday mornings, and we will be live streaming those services uh, still with some of the same, well, still with all of the same safety protocols in place, but we will be live streaming, and I got to tell you, I can't wait to see. Can't wait to see even more of you, and I can't wait to hear you sing. There's a lot to look forward to, so hopefully you will join us uh, Sunday, September the 6th. Now, we continue to be uh, in a sermon series known as Uncommon Time, and we continue to take our cues from this Carl Bart who says, Take your Bible, take your newspaper, and read both, but interpret your newspapers from your Bible. Not quite sure what Bart would do with this next headline. So, Dateline, Detroit, Michigan, where three or four days ago, tragically, a woman at the age of 20 died at a party, and here is the story
2: that followed. A bizarre discovery here at James H Cole funeral home, one that the woman's family hopes turns into a miraculous recovery. Paramedics from the Southfield Fire Department attempted to revive an unresponsive woman for 30 minutes, according to Fire Chief Johnny Menefee. It's not clear to us what led up to the 911 phone call. After a half hour, the chief says the 20 year old was pronounced dead. In a statement, Chief Menefee said, quote, because there was no indication of foul play as per standard operating procedure, the Oakland County Medical Examiner's office was contacted and given the medical data. The patient was again determined to have expired and the body was released directly to the family to make arrangements with a funeral home of their choosing, quote. But hours later, staff over at the James H. Cole funeral home realized she was still breathing. A loved one of the unidentified woman posted about the incident on Facebook, saying he received a phone call learning his sister was being rushed to the hospital because she had a heart rate of 85. The funeral home released a statement saying, quote, while it is our practice to not comment on open investigations, we can confirm we received a call to pick up a Southfield woman who was deceased. After receiving clearance from the Oakland County Medical Examiner's Office, she was transported to our funeral home. Upon her arrival at the funeral home, our staff confirmed she was breathing and called EMS. Our thoughts and prayers are with this young woman and her family. So how does this happen? The medical examiner tells me it's not unheard of. He says a misdiagnosis of death can occur if a person is in a deep coma or if there is an inability to detect vital signs. In Detroit, Darren Cunningham, 7 Action News.
1: Unbelievable, (laughs) unbelievable. And, and notice there were two different entities that declared her dead. It was not just the EMTs who arrived and, and examined her. It was also the, the medical examiner's office. The county medical examiner's office also confirmed. Yes, sure enough. Given what we now understand to be true, given the data, we can also, we can also declare that she is dead. However, she was not. And it does look like there's at least a chance that she is going to a full recovery. Here's why I bring it up. There's a lot of data that suggests out there that the church, capital C, that many people thought was already dying in North America. There are a lot of people who feel like that that the church was already bleeding, its young people in particular, and for various and sundry reasons, partly because we've been co-opted, it seems like, by both political parties, but because of other dynamics as well, that people already thought that the church was on its last legs, and more recently, more recently, there's some, there's some survey information out there that would indicate that sure enough, the church is dead. For example, one survey that I saw today said that 50% of millennials who who are self-identified as regular attenders pre-pandemic will not identify as regular attenders post-pandemic. A third of Xers will not come back. And most people aren't going to other churches. They just have figured out a way over the course of you know six months or so to have a different life habit. And for those reasons, there are people who are playing the role of EMT and medical examiner in this case, and they are saying, you know what? I don't, I don't really sense any breath. I think, I think we're dying here. May already be dead. May already be dead. And certainly there are other places in the world already understood as post-Christian that would have gone through something like this before. A a decline, a decline, a decline, and then some sort of a precipitating event which sort of just ended the whole thing. Western Europe at times is still understood to be post-Christian. Is the church dead? Is the church dead? Can we find signs of wind, breath, life, you already know this, so you can probably see it coming, wind, breath, those same words both in the Old Testament and the New Testament could also be translated as spirit. So, so I guess we could ask this question, are there signs of wind, breath, spirit in the church? And if there's not, why aren't there those signs? And, and if there aren't those signs, is there anything we can do about it to try to jump start, do a little bit of CPR so that there can be signs of breath, signs of life, I guess we could find some comfort in the fact that this is not the first time that someone has wondered if the church was dead. You have to know this. Paul wonders if the church is dead. This is part of the reason he's writing the letter. There is such fracture in the church in Rome, such fracture that the church is not a healthy testimony outside of the walls. All right, hear me say that again. There was such enmity within the walls of the church Such fracture in the relationships that could have been great and wonderful and life-giving inside of the church. There was such fracture between the people in the pews that they had no testimony, or at least that was the worry of Paul, outside of the building of the church. We say some things, and if you stay with us long enough today, whether you're here or you're watching at home, if you stay long enough, you're going to hear this phrase. We are learning to do these three things. Friendship with God, and then we move to friendship with one another, and then we move to open friendship for the sake of the world. I, I think, though, we should be, maybe, maybe we'll change the way we say it, because it's not like there are three distinct things. In our way of thinking, if you're doing one, you're going to be doing the other two. And if you're not doing one, like if you flatly refuse to do one, in all likelihood, you're not going to do, you're not going to be resourced to do the other two. So there are three different ways of saying perhaps the same thing, which is... Love moves this place. It starts in the heart of God and God's choice and God's love for us. And in view of God's mercy, then, we love one another. And in our loving one another, we finally have something to offer to the world. So, last week we said this. This is verses 1 and 2. So, Paul, appealing to his brothers and sisters by the mercies of God, please, he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the fractious nature of the culture around you in the world, but be transformed. We said a whole lot about that that I'm not going to say again, and all God's people said amen. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you could make the case that last week's sermon had mostly to do with friendship with God. That actually starts in the heart of God, in the mercies of God. So tonight we're going to talk about friendship with one another. And then what we hope becomes open friendship for the sake of the world. The five verses that Tamara read for us earlier, verses 9 through 13... They have to do with how we love one another. In fact, grammatically, you should know this. It doesn't look like it here, but in the original language, you have this first sentence, let love be genuine or real or authentic, but then everything else in verses nine through 13, they are all just sort of phrases that build out of this first phrase. In other words, it's like this, love should be sincere, let love be genuine, love should be authentic, and it should look like all of these other things. So hear this. Let love be genuine by hating what is evil, by holding fast to what is good. Grip tightly what is good, but hate what is evil. And then by loving one another with mutual affection, outdoing one another and showing honor. Verse 11, do not lag in zeal. Be ardent or be passionate in spirit. Serve the Lord. Let love be be genuine by rejoicing in hope, by being patient in suffering, and by persevering in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Extend hospitality to strangers. Now, As we have discussions of uh, all things economic, you're going to hear language like import and export. Let, let me ask you this question. What is the chief export for the people of God? What, what is our chief and most valuable export? It, it has to be this love thing that, again, starts in the heart of God. But then it's demonstrated in how the people of God are knit together, how they behave toward one another, how they sit together, how they sing together, how they come to the table together, how they are on Facebook together. Even and perhaps especially when they disagree. Even and especially in how we disagree where things political are concerned, where OU and OSU are concerned and other super important things like that. It's how we disagree that finally demonstrates. It's how we disagree. That's where we finally have a testimony that we can export to the world around us. Listen, let me say it like this. If we do not love one another in this room, then we have nothing to offer to the people outside of this room. In other words, our connections are as strong. I'm going to borrow a phrase from the commonplace jargon out there. Our con- connections to one another are as strong as our weakest connections to the one that you just—I don't know—struggle with. And I'm talking about within the church that someone who might be sitting in that pew, that one, or no, 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 no—it's the West Siders that are so strange. <laughs> Listen. What I'm saying is, if you want to somehow explore spirituality, if you want to somehow improve the quality of your connection to God, there are lots of ways to do it. One of the best ways to do that is to explore the depth and to strengthen the connection you have with other members of your community of faith. In fact, in fact, I'll say it like this. And I'll borrow from one of the Gospels. You cannot love God and hate your brother. You cannot love God and hate your sister. If you want to deepen your heart for God, it must be done in a way that also allows. In fact, these two are two sides of the same coin. Love for God is demonstrated so often in our love for one another. So how do you feel about that lunatic liberal Democrat that's in your class? How do you feel about that raging Republican fundamentalist that's in your class? Your connection with God, your connection with God is being answered as you answer those questions. Wolves and lambs, remember? That's where we ended last week. Wolves and lambs. We are to be that odd group of people who explore what it's like to prioritize a relationship over anything I might get out of it. Who prioritize a relationship over the risks that it takes for me to enter into this relationship. We are the people who believe that Christ lives not just in us but between us. And that is where our testimony lies for the people on the outside looking in. Uh, Let me ask you a different kind of question then. Is the country divided? Is there a divisive spirit in the country? Yes. If you're paying attention at all, you're gonna say yes. Then, what would it be like? What kind of gift could we offer? What's the best gift that we could offer to a fractured electorate, to a fractured culture out there? Here is the best gift that we could offer to give people a picture of what it looks like when people love one another, even and especially when they're gonna vote differently in November. It's the absolute best we could give to the people on the outside looking in. It's the absolute best gift that we could give, by the way, to our children. It's the absolute best gift that we could give to one another. Let love be genuine. Now, Paul's going to make a shift now. He's going to move on to what we would call the third part of our phrase, open friendship for the sake of the world. He's going to talk now about, we sometimes refer to these people as enemies and opposites and irritants. We don't often use this word persecution, but persecution was a real thing then and probably is now if we know where to look and what to call it. And here's what Paul says we ought to do with the folks who persecute us. Obviously, (laughs) you bless them. And what, what what does that mean? Does that mean just kind of waving a hand over them? or If for some reason you have ever felt persecuted, Blessing this persecutor might actually look like you praying for the good of that person. Friends, having tried this before, this is tough. This is, this is tough like trying to defy gravity. This is tough. And with the help of God, it's possible. Bless those who persecute you. And just to make the point clear, he says, Bless, don't curse them or curse at them. Bless and don't curse. Now, still talking about those who would persecute you, if your persecutor has some reason to rejoice, here's what you do you either go to the party or you send a card and congratulate. Your persecutor! If. Your persecutor experiences something that breaks her heart or his heart. Perhaps you send a card, maybe you show up at the door and weep. These are your persecutors. Again, let me ask you, would this be experienced as odd in a fractured culture these days? Well, of course it would be. But these that we're talking about now Paul is describing for us the signs of life, the signs of breath, (laughs) the signs that the Spirit is still at work. Verse 16, live in harmony. Still talking about enemies and persecutors because in Paul's context, there were plenty to go around. Live in harmony with your persecutors. Now this is a tough phrase. Don't be haughty meaning don't think that you're somehow better than your persecutor, but associate with the lowly. I bet Paul would have put that in air quotes. You, you think they're lowly? You need to befriend them. You need to associate with them. Do not claim to be wiser than you are because chances are, I'm adding this in, Middendorf Revised Standard Version, don't be, claim to be wiser than you are because chances are you're not. Again, having to do with your persecutors, your enemies. John, are you suggesting that we should just be doormats? Well, listen to this. It doesn't necessarily get better for those of you who are about to accuse me of such thing. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. We don't counterpunch. But take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Noble in the sight of all. Verse 18, if it is possible, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable, peaceably with all. Again, we are so wired. And, and we start, we start when our kids are really young and they start playing sports. But there's also healthy senses of competition in the classroom, right? You can be competitive just about anywhere. And we start with our kids being really young, telling them, you got to win. I have a friend that I grew up with who was famous for saying this all the time. You win a few and you lose a few, but you want to win more than you lose because if you don't, you're a loser. And we tell our kids from the earliest moments, you can't be a loser. And even if it has to do with somehow someone striking you, interesting, had this conversation with one of my children. I won't tell you which one he was. Even recently, what happens when, in the heat of battle, you suffer a blow of some kind? What happens? I mean, how often are we telling our children something other than what Jesus said and more importantly did? How often are we corrupting this version, this definition of this word, strong? Friends, the culture believes. And sometimes we tell our kids, and I feel like I'm probably guilty of this as as well. At some point during my kids' upbringing, they played sports for years and years, still playing. I think I can hear myself saying, you don't have to take that. Well, the truth of the matter is, they don't have to take it, nor do they have to counterpunch. Those aren't the only options. But have we corrupted this word strong, in particular, this terminology of Christian strength, by saying to our young people, by just parroting the language of the culture, when the culture says, you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. You may start it, but I'm going to end it. (laughs) You ever met a Christian that thinks he's Rambo? I don't think you have. I mean, I I think you can wear the T-shirt and not be a Christian. I mean, how long, how long are we going to go in a fractured society, play-acting and pretending to be Christian, while ignoring the very words and the example of both Christ and Paul. Happens a lot. There are some people out there who think they're fighting a holy war and that anything they do is justified because they're fighting. They're telling us on God's side. Listen, if you aren't fighting like Jesus, then you're not fighting on God's side. I'm gonna say it again because somebody needs to write that down. If you aren't fighting and resisting like Jesus, then you're not fighting on God's side. yeah, but I'm fighting for a good cause. You're not on God's side if you're not fighting like Jesus. Going back to verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought of what is noble in the sight of all. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then it kind of gets worse. Beloved, never. Doesn't say seldom. It says, never avenge yourselves. Do you, do you know what would happen if we were to take vengeance out of the idea pile for Hollywood? Some of my favorite movies would go away. <laughs> never avenge yourselves. You are the beloved of God. You are the beloved of God. If there are battles to fight, if you are harmed, I promise you, I promise you, a protective parental God is going to fight for you. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is kind of my territory. I will repay, says the Lord. Oh, but God, I can feel my fists are clenched. And my persecutor's right there. Oh, it's just, mmm. Okay, if I leave this up to you, what am I supposed to do? Verse 20, God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. If your enemies are hungry, I want you to feed them. And if your enemies are thirsty, I want you to give them something to drink. Wait a minute, shouldn't I want to sap the strength of my enemies, especially if they're hitting me? By not feeding them and by keeping them from getting something to drink? Like isn't that how warfare works? Isn't that how conflict works? Isn't that how battle works? Isn't that how fighting works? No, not for Christians. If your enemies are hungry, the ones persecuting, we're still talking about persecutors, here's what you do. You feed them. They're thirsty. You give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Now, that is an interesting, interesting (laughs) phrase. It's borrowed from Proverbs 25. But it seems to be, and I said this to you a minute ago, are our only options to fight back or to be doormats? No, no, no. There is a way. There is a way to behave in these situations that actually increases the possibility that there could be a better, a better result and increases the possibility of restitution. And it's by taking the power back from that other person, by not letting that other person dictate how you are, how you act, how you react. Listen, if you don't let the bully draw you into a fistfight, and if instead you give him something to eat, you give her something to drink, then somehow, in the wisdom of God, it actually twists them in a better way. This is not the only time this is said in Scripture. It says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say something like this. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, now, This isn't just a simple little altercation in the street. This is, though, a public altercation meant to demean and dehumanize the victim. If someone's going to strike you, they're probably going to strike you with what typically is going to be their dominant hand, their right hand. And in this kind of a a, a confrontation, it would be a backhand. Because, you know, you, you backhand someone who's lesser than you. You would, way back when, and even now, you backhand someone that you're trying to demean and embarrass and humiliate. And the only reason that wouldn't work is if the one who is the victim here refuses to be demeaned or embarrassed or humiliated. You think you just defeated me by hitting me on this cheek? You wanna try again? Now, we have to be careful here because this is not a call to be abused. This is not that. If you are in an abusive relationship, if you're in a physically abusive relationship, really abusive of any kind, but if you're in a physically abusive relationship, it is not a testimony to God that you stand there and let yourself get just brutalized day in, day out, night in, night out. That's not what we're talking about here. Please get some help in the process. You getting some help gets that other person some help too. What we're talking about here is a public encounter meant to demean, diminish, dehumanize you. But you would have an opportunity in that moment, and maybe it's not a physical thing, maybe it's a verbal thing, but you would have this opportunity in that moment to testify, here's what I mean, to say, oh, wait, here, you think my personhood is bound up in this reaction toward me. But I'm here to tell you that my personhood is not diminished by you. And I mean it. And so to prove it to you, I'm going to say, you can try that again, but it's still not going to change anything. I know who I am and I know who my God is, and I do not have to play by your rules. Much the same thing is said in this next Peace. If some wants to, someone wants, uh, steals from you and Suji wants to take your tunic, then give them your cloak as well. It reminds me of this scene in Les Miserables, my favorite scene, and I almost played it for you again, but it's almost overkill at this point, so I did. not But when Jean Valjean steals the silver, the priest who catches him red handed doesn't demand for it to come back, he doesn't throw this man in jail, he gives him more silver. It's as if the priest is saying, wait a minute, you think you can diminish me by taking my stuff? That's not where my personhood is bound up. Let let me show you something. Here's more of what you tried to take from me because I am not who you think I am. My personhood is bound up in who God believes me to be. And in the movie, I love this, he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, (laughs) with this silver, I've purchased your soul and I give you back to God. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Here's what typically we're talking about here. A Roman soldier, and they were everywhere, both in Rome and in Roman-occupied territories where Jesus was. A Roman soldier had the legal right to come to you, take off his armor, which might have weighed anywhere from 80 to 100 pounds, and demand demand that you carry that armor a full mile. And typically this would be done to embarrass you because they wouldn't choose the biggest, strongest. They would choose one of the smaller folks. But they could demand that you carry this armor a mile, and if you don't, they could kill you. But, Jesus says, that soldier who means to demean you can only demean you if you allow it. What if, at the end of that mile, you were to say, look, I I know this was meant to embarrass me, and so I've dragged all this stuff a mile, but really, I've got another mile in me. You took the first mile from me, I'll give you the second. Because my personhood is not bound up in what you, Roman soldier, think of me. N.T. Wright has a couple of quotes here that I love. They're just back to back. N.T. Wright says, to be consumed with vengeful thoughts or to be led into putting such thoughts into practice is to keep evil in circulation whereas the way to overthrow evil rather than perpetuating it is to take its force and give back goodness instead. As with the commands in verses 14 and 17, we may question whether someone in Paul's tradition of Torah-based zeal could have come to this position had it not been for the example and the teaching of the Messiah himself. I want to say this to us. As they are taking our measurements out there and wondering whether or not we're going to make it, as they survey us, as they are so ready to pronounce us dead, here is the key. You ready for this? Here's the key. We Christians have to rediscover the power of losing, of loss. We have to learn to lose well in the tradition of our Savior. Here again, here again, it has been costly for us as individual believers, but also as a body. It's been costly for us to not have the weekly opportunity to gather around the table where we retell the story every time of Christ's loss. It is not healthy body. It's broken body. And it is shed blood. For all intents and purposes, where the culture is concerned, they defeated Jesus. If we're going to use the culture's terms, then let's continue to use the culture's terms here. If we're going to have a shot, then we got to lose like Jesus lost so that we can live in the very same ways that Jesus continues to live. Got to learn to lose well at work. Got to learn to lose well at home. Losing, defined as losing in the tradition of the suffering Savior. Some of us need to learn to lose better on the road. Let's move on, move on. We're almost done. I have a fun video to show you. But first, I want to remind us of the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me. That was Ezekiel. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very, very dry. And he said to me, mortal, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know, only you know. I'm asking the same question. And not just about all of these bones, but these bones as well. Do we have a shot? If you remember, here's what happens. Spirit shows up, but it's called the wind. It's called the breath. But it is the spirit that shows up and fills these skeletons. They are covered with skin and then filled with this air, this wind, this breath, the spirit. And they stand to their feet. A mighty army. Verse 11, then he said to be mortal. These bones are the whole house of Israel. I would add the new Israel, also the church. They say our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. lost. We are cut off completely. And it's an election cycle during a pandemic. Therefore prophesy, Ezekiel, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves, and I'm going to bring you up from your graves, my people, and I will bring you back to the promised land, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves, and I bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil, And then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act. As long as God is breathing, there will be air, wind, spirit, breath in the lungs of the church. And in a lot of ways, we're kind of a giant breathing machine. There's plenty of air, wind, breath, spirit for all of us. And here when we gather, The breath of God is both identified and then made more available each and every week in our liturgy. Here we learn from the youngest to the oldest among us. We learn to breathe. Man called me not too long ago and said, I don't think I can do it. How can you reason with someone who's so wrong? (laughs) How can you love somebody who believes the opposite of what I do? He says, I don't think I can do it. And I reassured him as his pastor and said, no, I don't think you can either. (laughs) Not on your own. But first of all, you're not supposed to. You never were. This is a team sport. Second, the pandemic has proved positive that we need the regular participation in the life-giving, breathing exercises of religion. Dirty word as that is to some people. We need that, the work of the people. Without, we just can't. In fact, without, we won't. We won't. But it is possible. You see glimpses. Glimpses like this.
0: It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Back in '05. Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of and arrested him for dealing drugs. you saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all... Uh made up. Of course, a lot of accused men make that claim, but not many arresting officers agree. So you phonied the report? I did, I falsified the report. This is former Benton Harbor Police Officer, Andrew Collins. Were you just trying to chalk up an arrest? Basically, the start of that day, I was gonna make sure I had another drug arrest. And in the end, you put an innocent guy in jail? Correct. You lost everything.
2: I lost everything. My only goal was to seek him when I got home and to hurt him. Really? That was my goal.
0: Eventually, that crooked cop was caught, served a year and a half for falsifying many police reports, planting drugs and stealing. Of course, Jamel was exonerated, but he still spent four years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Today, both men are back here in Benton Harbor, which is a small town, maybe a little too small. Hey guys, thank you. Last year, by sheer coincidence, they both ended up at Mosaic, a faith-based employment agency where they now work side-by-side in the same cafe. Excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. And I said, honestly, I have no explanation, all I can do is say I'm sorry. And Jamel says that was all it took.
2: That was pretty much what I needed to hear.
0: Today, they're not only cordial. Saturday, we went to the trampoline park. They're friends. Uh, You know, we talk about life. Such close friends. Not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him. And I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that. Uh, I don't deserve that, you know? Did you forgive? For his sake or for yours?
2: No, for our sake. Not just us, for our sake. Jamel went on to
0: tell me about his Christian faith and his hope for a kinder mankind. He wants to be an example. So now he and Andrew give speeches together about the importance of forgiveness and redemption. I'll grab this We'll set it over there. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds, what's our excuse?
1: It's our excuse. I think we're going to be okay if we learn to lose and we learn to breathe. And we will learn to lose and we will learn to breathe as we get back into the regular, regular rhythm of our liturgies, as we continue to find creative ways to gather around this table, and as we pray. So let's pray. I'm gonna begin, begin with a prayer of confession before turning it over to Jason for prayers of petition and intercession. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, measure us now. Measure us now. We say this so often around here, but we need to say it again. Show us how much distance there is between who you are and who we are. And now give us the courage and the capacity to confess it. And now, church, I want to give you this time, as the room falls silent, for you to pray your own prayer of confession. Pray your own prayer of confession and ask whether or not you have learned to lose well or if you have farther to go. Let's pray. This written prayer of confession. May the almighty God have mercy on us and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit keep us in eternal life.